The scripture today comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. <clears throat> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. But while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were, even, they were at the tomb early in the morning, <clears throat> and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a, a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went back to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did, our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened, <coughs> opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they, told, uh, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You can leave that up there. Thanks. Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Don't get tired of it. Don't get tired of it. Because I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, one of my favorite authors is somebody named Lord Dunsany. Dunsany, sometimes it's said. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, Lord Dunsany. He was an Irish lord in the uh, early part of the 20th century. And he greatly, through his imaginative writing, and it's deeply imaginative, I encourage you to read it. It's really good stuff. Really wonderfully, wonderfully crafted, very short stories, only three or four pages apiece. He created a mythology. And what happened is Tolkien and C.S. Lewis read Dunsany. He, he really opened their eyes to the idea of a flight of fancy beyond normal literature. And he's, I can't even tell you how much fun some of his writing is, but it, it, it has that gothic style that it's a little bit impenetrable. Like the writing's not that good, but the stories are great. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so as Lovecraft's like that, and, and he's a lot like Lovecraft, in fact. 
but, uh, uh, but fantasy-oriented. All right, so, all right, so he has a story. This is a great little story. It's very simple. A man, is in a, he, man goes out one day, and he goes to an obscure market. And in this obscure market, he finds a booth with a strange seller. And the guy's selling, and, he, and one of the things he has in the corner is a little window. Beautiful little ornate glass window. Of, of just beautiful in its shape and everything, and colored glass and f- designs. And, 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 and the man looks at it, he thinks, this is beautiful. I know where this will go. It'll go perfectly in my stairway hall. And he bought it, and he put it up to hang it on the wall. And this, this actually is, by the way, a nice accent in home, sure. A nice, a nice beautiful window. As he came, as when, he came, when he came down the next day, as he passed the window, he realized something. He had bought a magic window, and he didn't know it. Because as he looked through the little window, he could see a little medieval castle. In fact, he could see uh, hills rolling in the distance, an idyllic, beautiful little kingdom, little turrets and little flags flying and people on the ramparts dressed in beautiful, fine armor, this beautiful little, and he, was, he couldn't believe it. And he was, stood there by the window just watching and watching until he had to go to work and then he went to work and he came back and he stood by the window and watched. And again and again, he would find himself entranced with his window that had it was a vision and a view into another world. As he was watching one day, he could see in the distance that an army was coming towards his little castle. He was panicked. They didn't seem to know. He's watching the castle. Do they know? Can they see the, the army coming? They, the army comes to the castle. He's watching. They take the castle. They begin to kill and destroy. And he, in a panic, tries to open the window. And as he does, as he tries to open the frame, to get, as he tries to get there, the vision evaporates. He can no longer see the kingdom. And for a brief moment, he could smell flowers and honey and fresh summer day. And it's gone. Wow. Wonderful little story. Sometimes I think, or I wonder, if that's not a picture of how some people see the church. I'm serious about this. Like, I wonder if that's how you see the church. What am I talking about? What I mean is, the church believes in something called resurrection. And this is an idea that a man, this man, this woman, any of you, could be dead, and will one day, even after you are dead, after that irre- irreversible a physical process begins of the decay of your body, it is possible, not even possible, it will happen. You will be raised from the dead. The church believed this for thousands of years. And, and, and I feel like some of you might be like, that was such a nice thing for the church to believe. Wasn't it? it was a fantasy. But then modernity happened. Then scientific inquiry started. Then materialistic skeptics started. Then we discovered there were other religions. And what happened to that cloistered, medieval Christianity that was a part of culture? Well, it, it broke. Well, isn't the church empty? Isn't it empty in Europe? Isn't it emptying here? Isn't the fantasy of resurrection too much for the modern mind? Is it? I'm, I'm, I'm not messing around here. I know there are some people in this room right now, that is exactly where they stand. And they go, Chris, the problem is I can't stomach something you can't really establish. 
Okay, and I, I really want to deal with it. I don't want to play games on an Easter Sunday. <laughs> and I, and I, don't, I, want, I want to treat, with the, treat this fully. I'm going to dive into it earnestly. Now, uh, guys, I don't know what I'm doing here. If I'm, This is not moving. This is exactly the kind of thing. All right, let's just keep moving. So uh, uh, where did where, where I go? Oh, all right, so the materialist and the skeptic. So I, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's the materialistic skeptic there are two voices, as it were, who respond to this claim, who respond to what uh, this as a fantasy. And the first voice, oh, look, oh, look at that. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. I pressed and it went ahead, didn't it? All right, now you know what all the points are before you see them. What I'm going to do today is what's called an evangelistic message. I've been giving these lately, evangelistic messages. And one of the reasons I begin, with, begin by, uh, by, by, by this question is I don't think we really know what to do with them. When a man gives an evangelistic message, this generation just kind of goes, what? This, this, this era, our culture, we kind of go, huh? What do you expect me to do, Chris? Like, what do you expect me to do today? Seriously. There are some here people who don't even believe God exists. Do you expect me to give my life to God today? I mean, what, what, how ambitious are you, Chris? Well, I am that ambitious, but, but that's another matter. It's not me. But there's, I am only here, and this preaching is supposed to be this. It's supposed to be the means of spiritual rebirth as catalytic. The means of spiritual rebirth are what? They're catalytic. I can't help you. That's, that's what's so infuriating about being a pastor, a preacher, a speaker, whatever. I am not able to open your eyes. I can't do it. I, I cannot reach in and open your heart. I, I am powerless. But I think there's three different kinds of people that are here today. And the first one is the skeptic, this true skeptic, who feels that these claims are simply fantasy. They may say, do you expect me to convert today on the spot, Chris? Do I expect you to convert today on the spot? Why not? But I'm not, that's not my goal. What I'm hoping is I can put a stone in your shoe. Why? I want to irritate you. That's a gift. I'm a gifted at irritating people, trust me. Uh, I, I want to irritate you. What I mean, I want to put something in your life that just kind of goes, oh, that's not comfortable. I don't, oh, I don't, this truth. Gosh, I wish I hadn't gone to church that Sunday. Oh, man, I can't stop, can't stop thinking about that. I hope that happens to some of you. I hope that I succeed in irritating you all week. Second, maybe you think, do you think that maybe I haven't really committed my life to Christ? There's a second group here, and there's a question mark over this group. This group is the bunch of people who are maybe believers they don't even know. They might be Christians, they might not. I can't tell looking at you because I don't see a lot of fruit. Maybe you don't see a lot of fruit in your own life, but there's a lot of people who are in church or visit church or come to church or visit occasionally or whatever. And, and I, I ask the question, do you think that maybe I haven't really committed my life? And maybe you're asking me that question. Do you think that maybe I haven't really committed my life to Christ, Chris? Yeah, maybe. And that's the kind of question I'm hoping for the person who's on the fence or the person who's made the decision, they'll go further towards Christ or the person who hasn't really made the decision will suddenly see who they really are. They'll have the aha moment that I can't make. I can't, oh gosh, you don't, oh, you don't realize. You guys have seen how excited I get and it's kind of embarrassing. I, I, don't, I don't even like the way I speak, but I, I'm doing everything I can to try to convince you, right? But I can't do it. It's weird. I mean, it's just a weird, a very weird, um, a lot of paradoxes happen in the gospel and they happen right on a Sunday morning. And then finally, there's a group here that would ask me this question. Do you know how I can grow stronger in my faith? 
And I want to say to those of you who know Christ today, slow hearts can speed up. And that's what I'm hoping we'll look at today. So how do we believe in resurrection? How do we maintain this belief as a credible, as a credible modernist? The skeptic says, this is the greatest magic trick of all time. And if you don't think that the resurrection couldn't have been a magic trip, you're not paying attention. It could have been. I entirely openly open to that, that it could have been that. I don't think it was. But it certainly could have been pulled off. The skeptic says, they ask, where's your logic and data? They ask, do you believe in a flat earth too, Chris? They would have a Darwin fish bumper sticker. You see those? I love, I love the Darwin fish that's eating the other fish too. I, just want to, I would like to put that on my bumper, but I would get so much stuff for it, I wouldn't be worth it. The universe functions only within the conservation of energy. And that's the law. It's the law of the universe. It cannot be controverted. The modern spiritual person says something else. These are two voices. And I see the first, the skeptic is everywhere in San Francisco, but so is the second person, the modern spiritual person. And what do they say? Well, Chris, it's good that you found something for you. You do you. <laughs> what do they preach? We all experience and find God in our own way. Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, Confucius, Lao Tzu, they all, aren't they all the same? Coexist would be their bumper sticker. And they wouldn't talk about the universe function of conservation of energy. What would they talk about? The universe is my friend. And it's looking out for me. Do you, did you hear this? I hear this. The universe is looking out for me. What goes around comes around. All sorts of versions of these. Now, obviously, the skeptic must answer some things, though. And this is what I'm going to... How do we believe in resurrection? The skeptic must answer. We know it is wise and fair to examine the claims of brilliant thinkers. Christ is the most influential moral teacher of human history. So therefore, how did he mastermind a lie? How did the 500 witnesses all agree to lie when they claimed to worship a God named truth? Now, there's more here. There's so much more I could answer. But these are just a few little, I'm just putting a stone in your shoe. I'm just trying to irritate you. I'm just trying to get you to go, I thought I, I okay. The modern spiritual person must answer something. Truth, truth is true for all people or it isn't true. Spiritual truth is more like math truth, <laughs> right? It's like two plus two equals four. Jesus Christ is Lord. Same thing. Same thing. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and Lao Tzu directed people to truth and sought it themselves. They did, earnestly and sincerely. But Christ did not, did not point to truth, did he? What did Christ say? I am truth itself. So how could he be like the others? Doesn't work. These two answers, they just don't work. And, they, and these two answers, the skeptic and the modern spiritual person, they are of a bunch of forms. Haven't you heard a little bit of your own voice? Oh, come on. All of us have thought these things or, or imagined them or heard them at work or with friends. All right, I'll go back now. So what are, what are we going to do here? Ah, how do I do? I'm sorry. Please forgive my, my stumbling around. So what am I, what's my plan now? So my plan now to deal with these three kinds of people, the hardcore skeptic, the middle of the road, I don't know where they stand, and the committed Christian. I want to follow Christ. What we're going to do today is we're going to follow Christ's example. And one, one way or another, I probably won't answer everything that would be asked by these people. If you're one of them, 
Look, if you want to ask me more questions afterwards, I, I could talk about this stuff all, all the time. And I'll talk about it more. But I want to hone in on Luke 24, 27, because Christ picks in this moment a particular way to prove something. He wants to prove the true spiritual nature of his claims and the remarkable truth of who he is in his suffering, death, and resurrection. He wants to establish he is the Son of God, and he will do it in a, in a very particular way. And I don't know what you're going to do. If you're a skeptic today, I don't know what you do with this. I really don't. If you're a skeptic today, you're in trouble, unless you're not intellectually honest. But there's five different ways we know that Christ was revealed in the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament? It begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi. The Old Testament was written across thousands of years, representing over 3,000 years of history. In many different formats, by many different authors. And one of the most amazing things that Jesus claims to those people on that road, on the, on the way to the road to Emmaus that Frankie read, that he claims that all that stuff was about him. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We're going to take a quick look from the beginning. <laughs> this was one of those weird ones. Nobody knows what to do with. And if you are truly, a truly a skeptic, I don't know what you do with this. Because this line from Genesis 3.15 is undoubtedly many thousands of years old. And after the fall of man, when sin entered the world, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the devil. Between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his. What the heck? Who bruises heels? Who at the, what is happening? There's, there's, there's some sort of light, light, light pain that this person has. He has a bruised heel, but Satan has a bruised head. He's dead. He's beaten. He's beaten. Who's he talking about? In fact, offspring right there is singular. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. There is in the very beginning of everything that defines us a message that one is coming. One is coming. One is coming. And Christ claimed to be that one. Make no mistake. What was the cross but the bruising of his heel? He does it through promises like that. How's another way that the Old Testament does? Through picture stories. Through the pictures of stories. And these stories are dramatic and living and frightening eerie. So one day, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And what? Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. <sighs> I don't know what you do with that. And, and I, don't know what, I don't know what Abraham felt and that existential. I don't know what he, he endured a tremendous suffering in that. I don't know what it was. But he didn't wind up killing his son. Jesus, God stops him. God stops him at the last minute. But why the killing of the son? Why? Why this dramatic story? It's a picture. It's a picture. All the scriptures concerning himself. He does it through promises, through picture stories, and through pattern recognition. Every year and every day of every year, there were sacrifices. And then every year, there was one sacrifice called the, uh, the scapegoat. 
And then he put his, both his hands on the head of the Goliath goat and confessed over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their, all their, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Who is your scapegoat? Goats can't help you. Goats, goats, you can, boy, you can go down to the market and confess your sin over a goat. It ain't going to help. I, can't, I don't know. I haven't tried it, so maybe... <laughs> Now, what is happening here? The, the, the whole, and Christ is telling us the whole sacrificial system upon which the temple was built is a, is a repet, repetition again and again. What is it? You have to die for sin or you have to somebody in your place. You have to die for your sin or somebody in your place. You have to die or somebody. You need a substitute. Who is your substitute? All the things concerning himself. Predictions. What do you do with this? I was actually reading this to to Tao out of context. And she looked at me and I go, that's from Isaiah. And she's like, that's, it's amazing. It's so long. We just watched the passion of the Christ. If you watch the passion of the Christ, you'll see what I mean. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. that <sighs> brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are, do you know the story? You know the story of his suffering? How is it that this man, 700 years, in an, in an ecstatic, poetic uh, a rant and beautiful description of a coming Savior, say he was pierced? They didn't even have crucifixion in 700 BC. But he was pierced. And the predictions get eerie. Guys, again, if you're a skeptic, I don't know what you do. You will have to say, if you're a skeptic, that every detail of the suffering of truth himself, who loved and died for others and gave his life, was just a liar. And it was all set up so it looked like fulfillment, but it really wasn't. It doesn't work, though, because that kind of liar does not create truth and beauty. Finally, previews. <laughs> previews! Look, they're not just promises. Promises beginning in Genesis 3.15, they go all the way to Malachi. Picture stories. Oh, you read your Bible, you'll see them over and over again. Pattern recognition. Gosh, you know, the, the temple might as well have been an abattoir. I don't know how you walked around without slipping on blood. All right? Pattern recognition. Prediction. There are so many predictions that are so eerie. You know, if you don't want to, if you don't want to look at them, your intellectual dishonesty is your problem. Previews. This is the weird one. <laughs> I can't imagine. So Cecil, I, I led Cecil to Christ. Cecil came to Christ years ago, and I, do you remember him, Alex Cecil uh, from the from the from the hood? And uh, my son's here. And uh, but he was but he was just learning how to read. <laughs> and he did, he does just what Nebuchadnezzar. This is really funny. It's a true story. I'm sitting at home one night, and this is what I hear. Uh, I get the phone rings, and I pick it up. This is before cell phones. This is in the early '90s. Then I pick it up, and he's like. Who's the fourth guy? I'm like, what? He, so Cecil was learning how to read. And he had just begun to read the book of Daniel. And he said with Nebuchadnezzar, what did Nebuchadnezzar say? Who's the fourth guy? And of course, with this, who? Oh, I love his discovery. What was happening to Cecil in that moment? He saw the preview because Nebuchadnezzar said, he tossed three people into the fire. And then they answered and said to the king, a true king, and he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth 
is like a son of the gods. That's from the words of somebody who didn't believe. Didn't even believe. Isn't that amazing? Uh, What am I hoping for today? I'm hoping that you will, because of, because of this overview, you'll begin, the stone will begin to bear bug you. I want you to locate yourself in the story, guys. And we've been looking at Rembrandt every week. And I want you to look at Rembrandt's three pictures of the cross, because he's in every one. Now, I asked here, do you expect me to put a, uh, convert you today on the spot? Well, I'm asking you to put a stone in your shoe, or out of the aha moment, or to speed up your heart. Rembrandt's in the first picture. Oh, they're putting him on the th- up on the cross. And there he is. Heave ho, dressed as a soldier. His business eyes, he's intent. He's angry. He doesn't care. He's doing his business. He's hoisting high the cross. And Rembrandt identifies himself in the story, doesn't he? And who is he in the story in this picture? He's hostile. He's a skeptic. He doesn't care. In the next picture... He's on the cross. This is him again. These are self-portraits. Now he begins to see, wait a second. In the second, I'm on the cross. Christ is my stead. He is my substitute. You see him moving from this picture of himself crucifying and Christ with anger to what? Christ being his substitute to being what? In the final picture, here he is again. And now he's Joseph of Arimathea. And he's tenderly taking Jesus off the cross. And now we have real faith. <laughs> I love that. Where are you? Which picture represents you? Which picture best describes how you get it? And where you are? All I want to do today is look at the words of God to know how we can apply these things and we'll be done. First... Look what it says. Their eyes were open. If you're a skeptic today, I, I, have to t- I, I have something to tell you that's going to upset you. You need to ask God to help you to stop being a skeptic because you're stuck. You're stuck and you're not really skeptical about your skepticism. You need eye openers. Maybe you need toothpicks propping your eye. You ever seen that in the, in the cartoons when they when they prop it, something's got to get in and open you up. Ears are something. The Bible uses tons of images like this. Use the image of your ears being open, your eyes, your, your heart being open. Something has to happen. Well, guess what? You're in the right place right now. If you're a skeptic today, do you know that you're being prayed for? Yeah. You don't know. Spiritual life might be coming for you. You didn't even see it coming. Beware the power of God. But you need your eyes open. That's what I'm praying for. It's a supernatural and spiritual reality. But the second group, who's more, do you hear when they said our hearts burn? Do your hearts burn and you don't do anything? You ever heard that happen when you're like, listening, you're like man, I, I want to do something about that mess? I don't know. I got a lot going on. Yeah, my wife's not really talking to me anymore. I forget it. In other words, we feel drawn, but we don't act. We feel compelled for a moment, but and just like the road to Emmaus, did our hearts burn? I felt that, that desire, that passion, that I've seen it, Chris, and I haven't really moved towards it. Are you in that group? Are you in that second group that feels like you're in a quagmire intellectually and morally and spiritually and you can't move or you want to move? 
When your heart begins to burn, turn to him. The burning of your soul and that anxiety, those are signals from the Spirit that you're coming alive. Oh my goodness, you're coming alive. Get excited. You're coming alive. Then our hearts burn within us. And finally, that group, the foolish and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Have you opened your scriptures? <laughs> I mean, seriously, guys. Do you think I try to get you to read your Bible because it's a good thing to do? <laughs> Just because I think it shucks, man. I would, that'll help you out a lot. You go get them. Self-improvement. I'm all about it. No. No, no, no. 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 Let me tell you, when you read the scriptures, your heart will be addressed. <laughs> your heart will be targeted and moved into. If you open the scriptures, you will open to them, and they will open to you. It is necessary, and, and I'm telling you, let's say you're saying, Chris, I don't get it. I think this is fuzzy. Read the book of John, and come back to me and tell me what you think. Get in to reject, if you're going to reject, or get in to get open, and get in to go further. In other words, it's to grow in Christ and to stop having such a slow heart. You have to be in your mile. <sighs> That's where his word. That's where you meet him. That's what he did. And that's how he used the scriptures. Don't you trust him if he's this good, if he's this real? But I want to end with something. So Christ never calls himself a window. doesn't call himself a window. He calls himself a door. Christ is not something you look through. He's not just some abstract. He's not, no, Christ is something you walk into. In John, the preposition into is always put with faith. Why? Because you have to be into him. Into him. Kinetically, fully, richly. Otherwise, you don't know him. Otherwise, you are far from him. In the very end, in the very end, what do they do at, after dinner? On their way to Emmaus. They're on, they're on their way out of town. What do they do? They rose. Turned around. Went back. And they went and told everybody what they saw. What, how does this end? It ends by acting and going through the door. It ends by action and speaking. You know, a lot of us, a lot of our faith is, is stuck in the end because we've never released it. And we wonder why we don't have joy. It's because we're not bringing joy to anybody else in our message. And we ourselves are not the avenue of that joy. I'm telling you, you will not have a complete sense of faith, a complete sense of him until you become what? A person who turns around and gets up and goes and tells others. You see, do you see the instinct they had immediately? They went out from that place to tell them. Is that what you do when you leave here? And in the end, if I preach an evangelistic message, have I succeeded? Have I invited you? I'm going to invite you in the table to prove your life to Christ. Have I invited you? Have I done my job? Have I done the work of opening? Have I done it? I don't know. But in the end, it's not my work. It's his. I will trust him with his word. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I love you and I love your word. And I love your will. And I trust all your plans. And I trust your love for me and your love for us more than anything else. I trust you. I thank you that <laughs> you're patient with slow hearts. I thank you, you open eyes. I thank you, you create burning in us. 
Now, Father, create action. Create action of love. Help us to find ourselves in the story. Help us to see you as our substitute. And help us come alive with gospel joy. Yes, Father. Do this because we've asked it in Jesus' name. Amen.